Take a Bible. We're going to look up Scripture tonight, read Scripture together. You can start in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read a number of other Old Testament passages. We're going to read in the New Testament some. And I'm going to begin talking about somebody that I have never talked about before in the context of a Bible study or a sermon. And that somebody is Ziggy Marley. Ziggy Marley. I was talking to a couple of guys just before we started about uh, the Bob Dylan concert last night and uh, albums and different things. So I'm just curious uh, to just gauge the group here. How many of you own an A-track or an album or a cassette tape or a CD or anything of Ziggy Marley? Of Ziggy Marley. One, two, two, three. Ushers count in the back. Three total. Yeah, that's about, that's probably more than I expected for the Wednesday night crew. So Ziggy Marley, this is the oldest son of Bob Marley, who is more famous than Ziggy. But Ziggy's, uh, he's got his own claim to fame. He's a musician. In 1989, he came out with an album called Conscious Party. And he won Grammy for Best Reggae Album. I'm sure all of you remember that. You can remember watching the show and seeing him get that award, I'm sure. There's a song on the album. It's the third song. It's called Tomorrow People. And VH1 says it was the 85th greatest one-hit wonder of the 80s. So you may need to know that someday. Tomorrow People's number 85, one-hit wonders of the 80s. It's a song about Americans, And it's a song about the idea that Americans are people who live in the future. We don't think much about the past. We live in the future. We are tomorrow people. We're not yesterday people, but we're tomorrow people. We're always looking forward. And you could sort of try to get analytical and historical about it, and you could look back at uh, the way our nation was founded with people leaving home, sort of leaving Yesterday, and looking for a better tomorrow, millions upon millions of people have come and continue to come to this country looking for exactly that, wanting to leave yesterday behind and go forward to a better tomorrow. Marley's point in the song is pretty simple. He talks about ideas like you've thrown away your past, and by throwing away your past, you no longer have a future. He says things like, You don't know where you've come from, so you probably have no idea where you're going. Now, I don't know how you feel about Ziggy Marley or reggae music or one-hit wonders or any of that stuff. The point is just to say, I do think he's on to something about Americans not thinking about our past very much. And I think that's true about Americans on a macro level and a micro level. And what I mean by that is on a macro level... Americans tend to forget our own history pretty quick. And if you've ever watched one of the the late-night talk show hosts when they go out on the street or they go to a college campus and they ask questions about American history or, uh, you know, government questions, things like that, I mean, people, they don't have any clue. They're looking forward to tomorrow. There's something out there they're chasing, but they've completely forgotten about yesterday. It's also true on a micro level that Americans, on the whole are not very adept at learning and remembering and passing down our family history. Some of you may 
have taken an interest to that at some point in your life. Genealogies and family trees and histories and things like that. Let me just give you a, an example to sort of show you how Americans really don't care about that stuff on the whole. I know we have a, a company called Ancestry.com and all these things that will tell you lots of information about your past and your family tree and people are into that and they spend a lot of money doing that. Compare that with other cultures. Uh, when Brooke and I were in college at West Texas A&M in Canyon, we, through our business classes, became friends with a number of international students. And WT at the time had a lot of international students from Korea and Taiwan. So we've got Asian cultures coming over here, going to school, and we start interacting with some of these people. And we made friends, and uh, we would invite them over for dinner. We had some of them over one Thanksgiving and uh, showed them an American Thanksgiving. And after we freaked them out with uh, turkey and gravy, we pulled out fried rice from the refrigerator and warmed it up so they could have something to eat. And they thought that was the greatest. They loved it. And then they would invite us over. And they didn't have any turkey and gravy hiding in the, in the refrigerator. We just ate whatever they put out there. And who knows what it was, but it was good, most of it. And uh, we, we'd get to know each other. And we wanted to learn about their culture, and they wanted to learn about ours. And one of the things we learned about not all of our, our Korean friends and our Taiwanese friends, but some of them, is that some of them continued after they came to the United States to, sometimes it's called worship, other times it's called venerate their ancestors. And they would have shrines in their homes that look something like this. I just pulled a couple of pictures off the internet. These aren't pictures that I took. But they've got a, a desk or a table or a sort of a, a corner of their living room or bedroom or entryway. And on that table, they'll set up pictures of all of the family members that they have pictures of. And they go back and maybe there's candles and maybe they put food out as some sort of offering. And they, uh, in some sense, pray to these people and remember them and try to keep their memory alive. And uh, it was interesting trying to talk to them and trying to figure out Uh, Are you worshiping these people? Well, not really, but you are definitely praying to them, and you think in some way they can help you or or do something for you. We were sort of young, naive college students, and we walk into their apartments, and it looks to us like they have shrines to idols set up in one corner of the room, and some people may see it that way. As we talked about it, they were horrified that we didn't do anything like this. I mean, mortified. And they wanted to know, well, you do know about your family, right? Well, yeah, I know about my family. I know know about my parents. I know about my grandparents. And my great-grandma even lived with us when I was in high school. And they said, that's as far back as you can go? You don't know about your great-great-grandma and your great-great-great-grandma or your great-great-great-great-grandpa? And I mean, they can go back, back, back. Dozens and dozens of generations, hundreds and hundreds of years. And I'm not just saying they can tell you names. They can say, oh, you know, great, 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 great grandpa, whoever. Well, this is what he did for a living, and this is where he lived. And this, they can tell you all sorts of things about him. And they sort of looked at us and they said, you know, you, you can only go back a couple of generations. We looked at them and thought, oh, this is kind of, this is kind of creepy and a little bit sad. And they looked at us and said, We pity you. You don't know your family. You don't know your past. You don't respect them. And we say, well, wait a minute. We have a command about that. It's in our top ten. 
and they hear it and they see how we live and interact with our past and they say, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't respect them. You're not even keeping your own command. I bring that up to say this. When you read the Bible and when you read the Bible and listen to it on its own terms, it will confront every culture. There is no perfect culture. When we go to Kenya, there's a lot of great things about Kenyan culture. It's not perfect. When you come back home to the United States, you're glad to be back home in your own culture, but our culture isn't perfect. My friends from Korea, my friends from Taiwan, their cultures are not perfect. And even when you look at this command, command number five, to honor your father and your mother, when you think about that and what the Bible is calling us to do, it's going to confront my friends who venerate their ancestors. And the earlier commands are going to say, hey, that may not be the best idea. That, that may not be something that you ought to do. But there's other things that the Bible's going to say about this fifth command that are going to confront me as a Westerner and say, hey, you may be comfortable with your culture, but you may not have it all figured out on what it means to keep this command. So we're going to try to think about it tonight, try to work through it, and think about how it applies to us. So look in your Bible. Let's just read the Ten Commandments starting at the beginning up through command number five, in verse 12. The Word of God says this, Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Here we come to Exodus 20 verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So we're going to talk about this command, command number five. I want to start with this idea. This idea may not be critical to really grasping it, but I do think it's interesting to wrestle with this this question. Scholars disagree about which table is home to the fifth commandment. And I'm going to let you look up Exodus 31:18. It's a little bit later in the book of Exodus, and it's looking back, and it's talking about God giving Moses these two tables. It says he gave Moses the two tables. And people look at that, and they say, what's the significance of giving him two tables? Some people just say, well, God's handwriting was big, and it took two pieces of stone. They were written with the finger of God, and so maybe he just needed two pieces of rock to get them, and that's how it worked out. 
many Bible scholars, I would say the majority of Bible scholars, look at that reference and they say there's sort of a division within the, the Ten Commandments. The first commandments deal with our relationship with God, and the later commandments deal with our relationship with other people. And the question that I'm posing right here is, where do we put commandment number five? Does it belong on table one? If you're type A and you like things divided evenly, you say, yes, you should put five on the first and five on the second. And that one goes right there. But that's probably not a good enough argument to think through which way it might go. You may look at it and you may say, well, your parents are people. Your father and your mother are people. And the last commandments all deal with don't murder other people. Don't commit adultery with or against other people. Don't steal from other people. Don't lie to other people. So this one probably belongs with the second table. That's what I've always thought in my head. That's the, probably the majority opinion. That's what most Bible scholars would say is that the division is commandments 1 through 4, table 1, and then 6 through 10, table 2. But the more I studied for this series, the more I begin to think maybe the fifth command actually belongs on the first table. One of the reasons that I think that is that when you read through the Ten Commandments, we just read the first five, Each of the first five commandments, somewhere in there, has a reference to Yahweh, to the Lord, in all caps. You can see it in verse 2, I am the Lord, your God. You see it in this idea in verse 3, where it continues, you'll have no other gods before me, and the rationale is given up in verse 2. You see it in verse 4, where it talks about, I am the Lord, your God, I'm a jealous God. You see it over in verse 7 where it says, Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You see it over in uh, the fourth commandment where it talks about the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. And then again in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the Lord blessed the Sabbath. And then even here in the fifth commandment, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And there's a group of Bible scholars that say, by God putting his name into that command, he's actually saying something really important to the people. The way you interact with your parents is not just like how you interact with other people. The way you interact with your parents is actually a reflection of the way that you're going to interact with God. God has put these people into your life in a very unique role And the relationship that you have with your parents is actually going to be reflective some ways of the relationship that you have with God. And so you can can sort of split this one way or the other. My, My thought all previously in my life leading up to this series, this study, is that you take the fifth commandment and you put it on table two. But the more I read about it and I see the first five commands all reference the Lord, the last five commands don't reference the Lord. First five have the Lord in it, the last don't. I think what God is saying through Moses is these first five belong together. And the way that you interact with your parents is going to be reflective of how you interact with the Lord. We're going to come back to that idea in just a minute. I want to point this out to you. The fifth commandment, when it says, quote, unquote, honor your father and your mother, what does that mean? Well, it's a call to fear and respect and revere our parents. Fear, respect, and revere. And I just want to point out one passage to you in Leviticus 
chapter 19. If you just fill those blanks in and take your Bible over, flip over to Leviticus 19. I want you to look at verse 3. We'll back up to verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere. If you like to make notes in your Bible, you circle the word revere and you draw a line out and you say that's the exact same Hebrew word that you find back in Exodus 20 when it says honor your father and your mother. Same word. That Hebrew verb describes at the same time how you're to relate to your parents and how you're to relate to God. Revere your father and your mother. You shall keep my Sabbaths, for I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal, for I am the Lord your God. Same idea in those passages. We're called to fear them, respect them, revere them. It's a picture when we relate to our parents of how we think about our relationship with God. Next, I want you to see the fifth commandment includes honoring both your father and your mother, both of them. He could have just said your parents, but he makes a point to say honor your father and your mother. And it doesn't say honor your father a little bit more than your mother or honor your mother a little bit more than your father. They're both put there on equal ground. And if you've been reading the Scriptures You read that and your mind might go back to the early chapters of Genesis where it talks about God creating human beings and creating them in his image. Genesis 1, male and female, he created them. Both of them equally created in God's image, right? One not more valuable or more important than the other. He creates them male and female. And here he says to children, to to people who are listening to these commands, you will honor, you will revere your father and your mother, both of them. That's an unprecedented command in the ancient world, right? You can look at the Ten Commandments, you say, oh, other, other law codes of ancient civilizations, they talk about uh, respecting your, uh, your authorities, or they talk about not killing, or they talk about not committing adultery. Many of them talk about adultery. This idea of honoring father and mother and honoring them in an equal way is unique. And I just want to make one more point about this. This is just a side point. You just sort of file this away and you can think about it on your own. We live in a time when one of the most controversial issues about Scripture and morality and ethics is the question of gay marriage, homosexual marriage. Is that okay? Is it not okay? And many times when we argue about that, we think about that, what we do is we dig through our Bible and we look for all of the verses that say, don't do it. We have our proof verses and we go to all these verses and we say, look, right here it says don't do it. And we flip the page over, right here it says don't do it. It says it in the Old Testament, it says it in the New Testament. We have these verses and they very clearly, they do very clearly say not to do it. Those are passages that we need to remind ourselves of in that debate. When everyone around us is saying it's normal, it's okay, we go back to those passages. But I also just want you to think about Exodus 20, 12. And I just want you to think about all of the many passages throughout the Bible that aren't necessarily saying don't do this, 
but they are presenting to you what is normal, what is assumed, what is expected, what is the way that God created it to work. All the way back to the beginning where he creates man and he creates woman, and somehow those two complement each other. All the way up to Exodus 20 where he says, look, you're going to have a father and a mother. I know there's exceptions to that. I know that parents die. I know that not everyone has a father. Not everyone has a mother. But it's saying this is the the general pattern. You're going to have a a mom and a dad, and you're going to honor them. And the built-in assumption of that command that flows all the way through the Bible is not that you're going to have a father and a father or a mother and a mother, but you're going to have a father and a mother. You're going to have a husband and a wife. So I'm just saying to you, when you think about this issue and you hear people argue about it, don't forget the fact that the Bible just assumes from Genesis on this is the normal pattern. And you see that right here in the Ten Commandments. I want you to see something else about Commandment 5. The Fifth Commandment is the only commandment that includes a promise. The only one with a promise. Exodus twenty twelve: Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you can just hold your spot there, flip over to the right, and look in the New Testament at Ephesians chapter 6. We'll just look quickly at Paul's commentary on that verse, or on this idea. Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father... And your mother, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. You look at commandments 2 and you look at commandments 3 and commandment 4, there's explanation on those commandments. There's warnings built into those commandments. We talked about the warning in commandment 3. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Here's the warning. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This really is serious to God. You need to be serious about it. There's a warning. But this commandment has a positive promise. Do this. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. I just want to mention one more debate about this promise. Paul points out this is a command with a promise. Scholars look at this promise, right? The promise is that your days will be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. And you've got one group of scholars that say that promise only really applies to commandment number five. It's only attached there. It only applies to number five. You've got another group of scholars that say, no, 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 no. God knew what he was doing. He put it right there in the middle because it applies to all of them. Right at the end of number five, right before number six, it's just right there in the middle and it applies to the whole law. This promise right at the heart of it. Keep this law that it may go well for you, that your days in the land will be long and prosperous. And some of them look at it and say, no, 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 it only looks backwards. It's only talking about the, uh, the way that you, you relate to God in commandments one, two, three, four, and then five, which also mentions the Lord. You can take your pick, I guess. I read a lot of different arguments about that. I think we could look at all the commands, including the fifth command, and you could say this. If the people had kept these commands when they went into the land, it would have gone much better for them. Life would have been way better. 
right? Just day to day. I'm not even talking about they wouldn't have got kicked out in the exile. I'm just saying like your day-to-day experience of relationships. If you keep these commands, life's going to be better, right? That's true for the ancient Israelites, and it's true for us today. This is not a magical promise that says, if you do your best to keep the Ten Commandments, your life is going to be amazing, Everything's going to go your way. You're going to live a very long and fruitful life. You're going to have lots of money. Everyone's going to like you. This is a proverbially true promise. You see them all the way through the Bible, right? What you can generally expect is that if you will live this way, life will go well for you. If you don't go around killing people, you're going to have a better life. Believe it or not. We're going to talk about killing next week. I don't want to steal, steal our thunder for next week, but how about let's just say not even killing. If you don't walk around bitter all the time, life's going to be way better. Way better. If you don't go around sleeping with people that you're not married to, you're going to have way less to worry about in life. Believe me. If you don't steal things that don't belong to you, I promise you, you can just, that's just how you talk to your kids, right? Don't do this, thing, this stuff. Don't do these things. Life will be way better if you don't do that. I think that's the heart of this promise right here at the middle of the commands. God's saying to his people, I made you. I'm your creator. And I saved you to belong to me. And I'm giving you a blueprint for how life really works best. If you'll just do these things... Life is way, way better. Is it going to be perfect? No, it's not going to be perfect. Is it magic that if you do, do good enough, then God's going to owe you or make things great for you? No. It's just a general rule. You don't do these things and life is better. It's true. One last idea. The fifth commandment. It's not just for kids. Before I explain this, I do want to say it certainly is for kids. But it's not just for kids, right? Jewish tradition, as far back as you can go, looked at this command and said, children, young children, based on the fifth command, have certain obligations towards their parents. And their culture was different of when you transitioned from childhood to adulthood and all those things. They didn't have this concept of teenager or emerging adult or whatever you want to call it like you're a kid now you're grown and they had this idea kids children you have certain obligations to your parents but they also understood as far back as you can trace it in Jewish interpretation they also understood grown children adult children also have certain obligations to their parents they understood that and they tried to figure it out and sort it out as best they could over time. So it does apply to little children. It also applies to, we could say, grown children. Here's a quote from Dr. Moeller. We are far too comfortable with this commandment because we think it is addressed to children. This is not children's church in the middle of the Ten Commandments. It's not as if we have nine grown-up adult commandments dealing with things like adultery and murder and idolatry, taking the Lord's name in vain, and then all of a sudden a commandment that's addressed to the children. God was not looking for a way to involve the children in the tenfold moral code. Obeying father and mother is certainly part of this commandment, but that is not the completeness of what this commandment means. 
That means you and I, as we look through it and we think, okay, this is what it says. What does it mean for me? We don't get to say, well, I'm grown, so I am thankfully past at least one of these ten, and I don't have to worry about it. You still have an obligation to your parents and, as we're going to see in just a minute, to other authorities. So what does the fifth commandment include? Let's talk about the category rule. The category rule reminds us that the fifth commandment tells us how to relate to authority. So what we're doing with the category rule is we're taking something specific in the commands and we're pulling out the broader principle that we apply to other areas of life. Okay? We're going to do this when we get to commandment seven. I'll give you a little preview, right? Commandment seven, you take your seven, you got the ground, and you got a husband and a wife, and you say, be faithful to your spouse. We say, do not commit adultery. Okay? Have you ever thought about the fact that in the Ten Commandments, there's only one sin addressed that's a sexual sin? Only one out of the ten. All it says is adultery. Ten Commandments don't say anything about prostitution. Ten Commandments don't say anything about homosexuality. Ten Commandments don't say anything about premarital sex. But when you think about the category rule, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Ten Commandments isn't all that God said to his people. He said lots of other things, and he gave lots of other restrictions and directions about sex. And so this commandment stands in the ten for all of those things. Right? It represents a broader category of things that God is concerned about. And that's true, definitely true, with commandment number five, the category rule. Commandment five represents an entire category of things we need to be concerned about. How do we describe that? It tells us how to relate to authority. So here's a quote from A.W. Pink. The sum of it, therefore, will be, of commandment five, that we should reverence them whom God has exalted to any authority over us. That's his interpretation and application of commandment five. Not just your parents, but anyone in your life who occupies a position of some authority. So that would include your grandparents. Right? Different authority than your parents, but some sort of authority. That would include your teachers or your professors, right? They don't get to tell you to do things like your parents get to tell you to do things when you're five, but they are placed over you in a position of authority. That would include government. And you say, yeah, but not the Democrats. Like, some of you might say, I have other friends who would say, yeah, but not, not the Republicans, or not that Republican. Maybe those guys, but not that guy. Yes, those guys. All of them. Paul talks in the New Testament about the obligation of the Christian to respect and to show honor to the governing authorities. And when he said that to Christians... He had it way worse than Republicans or Democrats. He had Caesar. And he didn't say, look, you know, be nice to Caesar as long as he's, as he's making good God-honoring laws. He said, God's put that guy in power. Don't pretend like God's not in control of who sits on the throne of Rome or any other nation or the United States. God's in control of that. If God's put them there, you show respect 
to them. We're going to temper that in a minute, but just don't try to wiggle out from that because you're like me. You want to try to wiggle out from it, right? You want a, a political affiliation loophole. Well, I'm going to show respect and honor as long as, no, no, that's, there's not any of that. Somebody's in authority over you, you show respect to them. You show reverence for them in some sense. That would include employers, your boss, right? Whoever, where, where's your paycheck come from? That includes showing respect to that person. That means you're not going to go around when you're not at work and tell all your friends how big of an idiot your boss is. Oh, they're such an idiot. They, if I was running the place, let me tell you, it would really be respectful. You wouldn't go around saying that about your mom to other people, would you? Oh, my mom, she is this the biggest. Whoo! That's commandment five. Commandment five is this category rule of how you relate to authority in your life. That includes pastors. And I'm, I'm, I'm cautious in saying that because there's way too many examples of pastors in our culture today who abuse their authority in a number of different ways. And it's disgusting. But that doesn't change the fact that the New Testament says, for example, in the book of, of Hebrews, show respect to those that God has put over you in your church. You should honor those people. So all of these things, right, government and teachers and employers and pastors and parents, all of these things fall under the category rule. When you think about it that way, you realize how important Command 5 is. To go back to Dr. Moeller, we're not just talking about children's church here. We're not just trying to guilt the children into going to bed on time or eating their green beans or whatever. This category is really talking about how we function together on the earth, right? How, how are we going to relate to each other in governments and in schools and in institutions and in churches? Is it just going to be chaos and anarchy in every person for themselves? Because that's not going to go well. That's going to be a train wreck. There's got to be authority. God set that up in creation, and he includes it in the Ten Commandments here. How do we relate to authority? Augustine said this, the great theologian Augustine. This is a great quote. Quotes are usually better the shorter they are. If anyone fails to honor his parents, is there anyone he will spare? And every teacher in the world said, Amen. If children do not learn how to submit to authority at home, they won't know how to do it anywhere else. In the classroom, in work, in college, in politics, in anything. If you can't learn it at home, if you fail to honor your parents, is there anyone that you will spare? This is foundational to how we relate to each other as human beings. One last thought. The fifth commandment does not require obedience to parents or any other authority if that obedience results in disobedience to God. That's why this is commandment five, not commandment one. Right? We start off very clearly. You will have no gods but God. You're not going to worship idols. You're not going to take his name in vain. And you're going to keep the Sabbath day holy. Period. End of story. Your allegiance is to the Lord. And then we move into this, this sort of transition command where we talk about other authorities that God has put in our life. The most immediate one 
that we all experience in some way is parents. We're going to submit to authority that God has placed over our life. But we're not going to submit to that authority if it means we're going to disobey God. So we can play this out in a number of different ways. If a parent tells their child, I want you to do X, Y, and Z, and doing X, Y, and Z means the child is going to break other commandments or commit sin or do something they ought not to do, that child is not under obligation to obey their parent. And that parent has no right to use this command as a manipulative power tool to make them submit. Okay, That's true for husbands and wives. Let's talk about husbands and wives. Paul says it very clearly in the New Testament. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's an authority issue. That in no way, shape, or form means that the husband can say to the wife, I want you to do X, Y, and Z that are sinful, and you have to do it because I'm the husband and I said so. No, no, no. Not how it works. We could even play this out on a government level if you wanted to think about the apostles in the New Testament, right? Jesus says, go out and be my witnesses, and they do it. And the same guys that crucified Jesus haul them in and say, shut your mouth or else. And they say, look, do what you need to do. We cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. We cannot disobey God to obey man. We will respect you. You have authority. We're not going to try to overthrow you. Do what you need to do. If you need to kill us like you killed Jesus, kill us. But we're going to obey God first. And you look at this command. It's command five, not command one. Uh, A few Old Testament examples. I like to look at a few of these Old Testament and a few of these New Testament quickly. Look at, uh, I'll let you read Genesis 9 on your own. That's the story of Ham not honoring his father. And it was severely punished. Look at Exodus 21 verse 17. I just want you to see a few passages here. I want you to see the weight of this command. I want you to see that this is not a lightweight, secondary command among the ten. Exodus twenty-one seventeen. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Flip over to the right and look at Leviticus 20. Leviticus 20, verse 9. Anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother, and his blood is upon him. This is originally, not just in the top ten, but originally a capital offense in Israel. Violating this command was forfeiting your life. And you're saying, wow, how, do, how would anyone live past three years old? We'd just be killing everybody. Right? There's some explanation in Deuteronomy 21. If you flip over to Deuteronomy 21, I think it helps us make sense of what God expected from the people. There's a little more detail in this passage. Deuteronomy 21, verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him Bring him out to the elders of his city, at the gate, to the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of the city, 
This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. That kind of gives you a little bit more of an idea of what kind of stuff we're talking about here, right? He's stubborn. He's rebellious. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. This is not like I caught little Jimmy snitching a cookie out of the cookie jar, and so now we're going to stone him. This is this is this has gone too far. This person is completely out of control. It says, All the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. You shall purge the evil from your midst, and Israel shall hear and fear. And I'm not going to say a whole lot about that. I just want you to think about this, and you can wrestle with it. If you have questions, we can talk about it. Originally, this is a capital offense. Not for small, minor violations, not for things that children do where they cross the line or they're pushing the boundaries, but for willful, intentional, unrepentant, habitual rebellion against father and mother. God says, eventually, you're going to have to deal with this. And the consequence that it deserves, as God lays it out, is capital. That's how he spells it out. There's not a whole lot of evidence that Israel ever practiced this on a widespread basis. You can understand why. There's not any indication that we ought to try to pass laws like this today. The Bible has a whole lot to say in the opposite direction for how we think about laws and rules and in raising our children today. I just do want you to see when you read these passages, you come away saying, this one really did matter to God. This really was important. This is more than just the kids won't quit talking in church and they won't listen to mom or dad when they tell them to, to zip it. God understood in Israel what Augustine said. If you won't spare father and mother, where is it going to stop? This, you break this fifth command habitually and continually and you're not sorry about it. That's not going to be the end of it. This is going to be a cancer that spreads throughout your life and throughout the people. So this one mattered to God. New Testament examples. Look at Matthew 15. Matthew 15. Let me read a few verses here. Start in verse 1. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. They said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat. You understand what they're mad about? You didn't wash your hands. And it's not a germ issue, it's just a ceremonial issue. And it's the tradition of the elders. This is the way we do it. We've always done it this way. Why don't your guys do that? He answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. We just read about that. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
These Pharisees and scribes had a little word game that they liked to play. They understood commandment number five. They weren't dummies. They knew what it meant. They knew it applied to young children. They knew it applied to grown children. They knew that when I'm old and my parents are older, I have an obligation to honor them and to take care of them. But they didn't like that. It was a financial burden on them. And so they came up with this rule that said, think about the structure of the Ten Commandments. They sort of thought it through and they said, well, you know, you've got to honor God first, right? That's the first part of the commandments, honor God first and then other people. Well, what if I had money that I was planning to give to missions or the tabernacle or the temple or the whatever? I probably should give that there before I give it to my parents and help them out, right? I mean, that makes sense. God comes first. You want to say that parents come before God? I don't want to say that. So God's going to come first. And then over time, they played some more rules with it. And in the end, this is what it amounted to. You didn't even have to give the money to the missions fund. You didn't even have to give it to the, uh, the church or the tabernacle or the whatever, the temple, the priest, day of atonement, sacrifice. You didn't have to do that. All you had to do was say, you know, I think I'm going to give this money over there. And they said, that gets you off the hook with your parents. And Jesus just, they come and they want to talk about hand washing. And Jesus says, are you kidding me right now? You're the people who break the commandment to play word games with your traditions and God's word. You're making void the commandment of God. You're not not keeping anything. You're not doing anything good or right. You're hypocrites. It may look a little bit different in our lives. I just want you to be aware of the idea in Matthew 15 Jesus is saying, your religion in your twisted mind might become an excuse somehow for you not to keep this command. And he says, don't go there. Don't try to set God against your parents and play it off that way. Don't do that. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. We could read the whole, the whole section here starting in verse 18. Let's just jump in at verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, and right here in the middle, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's a pretty rough list in places. And right in the middle of it is commandment number five. And Paul's argument in this chapter is when your theology goes haywire and you don't honor God as God, eventually that's going to affect the way you relate to other people. Duh. Ten commandments. First set, first table relating to God. Second set, second table relating to other people. If you go haywire on the first, you go haywire on the second. And part of that, Paul says, is disobedience to parents. One more passage, 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. 
verse 1. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Stay away from these people. They're going to come. They're going to treat disobedience to God like a joke, like everything else. And Paul says, stay away from these people. I'm going to let you look at Ephesians and Colossians. It's instructions to children and it's instructions to grown children and how they relate to their parents. Uh, Like all of the Old Testament, there's an assumption built in in Colossians and Ephesians that parents are doing what they ought to be doing. They're teaching their kids. Right? That's built into the Ten Commandments. When God says, honor your father and mother, built into that assumption is that your father and mother are teaching you, they're leading you in a godly way, they're setting a godly example for you. All of those things are just assumed in the New Testament and in the Old. Let's end by talking about Jesus. His active obedience. Jesus' passive obedience is when he dies on the cross. His active obedience is his life of keeping the Ten Commandments. And as we think about commandment five, we would say this. Throughout his life, Jesus was perfectly obedient to his heavenly father and perfectly obedient to his earthly parents. He kept this command. You go back and look at the passage in Luke. It's the story, I think most of us know it, where Jesus gets left behind in Jerusalem at the feast And Mary and Joseph go on without him and they panic. They've lost the Messiah. And they go running back to find him. And uh, I bet that was an interesting conversation on the way back between the two. And they find him. And he's, he's talking and he's asking questions and he's in discussion. And Luke makes a point at the end of that story to say he went with them and he was submissive to them. And it's Luke's way at the end of that story, it's Luke's way of saying, look, don't, don't twist this to say Jesus like snuck around and disobeyed Joseph. and it, Don't blame Jesus for sin in this. Don't, don't try to twist this into Jesus uh, disobeying his parents, breaking the fifth commandment. Luke says he was submissive to them and he grew in wisdom and he grew in stature and he learned from them and he obeyed them. This continues, we don't have a whole lot of details about it, but it continues all the way up to the very last moment of Jesus' life in John 19. And you can read this as well. I'm going to let you look at it. Jesus is on the cross, and he's being crucified. And there's this odd part of the story where he looks down and he sees his mom, and none of his brothers are there. His brothers at this point think he's a, a crazy person. They're probably mad at Mary for encouraging him. So there's family conflict, and he looks down at his mom, and he sees his buddy John right there at the foot of the cross, and he says to John, behold your mother, and he says to his mother, behold your son. And he's saying to John, I need you to take care of her. That's my obligation. I'm the oldest son. Fifth commandment means that i got to honor my father and my mother. And my mom's right here. And it might be rough for her when I'm not here. And John, you need to stand in and do this for me. 
And it's just, it seems in the, the weight and the gravity of everything that's happening in the moment when Jesus is dying as the atonement for our sins, that might seem silly to you. It might seem trivial that Jesus is making living arrangements while he's dying for the sins of humanity. But what he's doing is he's keeping the fifth commandment right up to the very end of his life. He is actively obeying the Lord. In his passive obedience, he's dying and he's suffering and he's allowing these men to kill him. He's laying his life down. But his active obedience continues and he continues to keep the commands. Even command number five, the one that we normally say, oh yeah, for children. Now, as a grown man, the Messiah is keeping this command in the last moments that he's alive hanging on the cross. And if he doesn't do that, he's not fit to die for us. If he doesn't keep the law perfectly and obey the Father perfectly and fully to the end, his death is of no value to us. He can die a thousand times if he doesn't keep the command. It doesn't mean a thing. The beauty of the cross is not only that Jesus dies for our sins, but that all the way up to the very moment when he gives up the ghost, as John says it, or he gives up his spirit, he has kept the law of God perfectly. So that when we as sinful people who have not kept this commandment perfectly put our faith in Jesus, our sin is counted as paid at the cross, and the righteousness of God's Son is given to us as a gift. As if we had kept the commandment perfectly and fully just as he did. And so that's his active obedience. Perfectly obedient to his heavenly father. Perfectly obedient to his earthly parents. And because he did that, he's fit to die as the sacrifice for our sins. And to provide us with the righteousness that we need before God.